Again, thank you so much for this opportunity to be with you this morning. We are grateful uh, for the ministry that God has called us to on campus um, at FAU. Without your prayers and support, without your encouragement and friendship, we wouldn't be able to be on campus uh, fulfilling the ministry that God has called us to do. And so, thank you. Uh, thank you for sending us to the campus uh, of FAU. As I think about college ministry, one of the reasons I love, uh, one of the reasons I think I love college ministry so much is because it's such a transitional time in life. If you think back to your own years in college, or maybe you're a high school senior and you're thinking about going away to college, you think about that transitional nature of being in college, of Figuring out life for the first time on your own as an adult, making that transition from being under the full dependence of your parents to a little bit more independent living. But so often the decisions that we make in college set the trajectory of our lives in profound ways. You think about the major that you choose, uh, the person who you're dating and possibly will marry. Uh, all of these types of internships, careers, job choices often are set in that college environment. And so while you think about FAU and you can think about, uh, you know, you see the billboards or you think about the news of the football program or the academic rigorous studies that happen, all of that is true and all of that's a beautiful thing, but it's also an incredible place for gospel ministry to go forward, a place where uh, God has called us to serve Him and sharing with students the hope that we have in Christ. And so one of the things that we do as a ministry is seek to, to give students the impression of the beauty of who Jesus is, to help them see that amidst all the noise and all of the clutter and all of the things that clamor for our attention, that really Jesus is the one who is superior to all of life, and he's the one worth pursuing. And I say that because it's a great transition into the passage that we're going to study this morning in Colossians chapter 1. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can follow along with me. It'll also be on the screen behind me. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20, Paul is writing to his church with this same mindset for them to see who Jesus is. We studied Colossians this year in RUF, and so I wanted to bring something to you from the campus. This is what we've studied, but also hopefully for you to see Christ this morning as well. Hear God's word. He, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church that's meeting in the city of Colossae, a church that he didn't plant, a church that he'd never visited. In fact, Paul's actually writing from prison, receiving the report from one of his disciples, by a man by the name of Epaphroditus, who has planted this church. And Epaphroditus has come back to visit Paul in, in prison and to share with him all of the activity that he has been engaged in and the way in which the Holy Spirit has been at work planting this church and bringing new converts into the mix and into the fold of God's kingdom. But Epaphroditus also brought with him a report to Paul of the way in which the church has gotten sidetracked, the way in which false teaching has crept into its midst, and the way in which they were beginning to look for hope outside of Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to bring back the church to the place of central understanding and core realities of who Jesus is. And what we're going to see this morning 
is that the main point of this section of these five, six verses is that Jesus is superior to everything this world offers. Jesus is superior to everything this world offers, and he is sufficient to meet our needs. There's four ways in which Paul unfolds this idea of Jesus' superiority. So follow along with me this morning as we look at the the significance of Jesus being superior to all of life and then how he meets all of our needs. Here's the first way in which Jesus is superior. Jesus is God. Look at verse 15 with me. He is the image of the invisible God. Would you say the same thing? Jesus is God. You think a, a statement like that, right, sort of, sort of has this idea of, of like, it's, it's sort of a benign belief, right? Like within the church, certainly it's not controversial. All of you would probably assent to that idea that Jesus is God. I would go so far as to say that if we were to give you a multiple choice test as you walked into the, to the room this morning that said, Jesus is God, true or false, most of you would say true. But I recently saw the report of a survey that was done by Lifeway Ministries in combination with Ligonier. Uh, ministries, every couple of years, they release a report that, uh, that delineates the religious beliefs of Americans. And in their most recent report, it was said that 53% of Americans responded, Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. 53% said, Jesus is a great teacher, but he is not God. Maybe it's not such a foregone conclusion that you would believe that Jesus is God, but I want you to see that what Paul is teaching us this morning, what God would have us know, is that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. Throughout the Old Testament, God was known as a spirit. He's invisible. He appeared in the form of a cloud in order to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush, but make no mistake, God's not a cloud God's not a burning bush. There's a sense of mystery around who this God really is as he's an invisible spirit. Well, the Old Testament believers could have sang that hymn with us, immortal, invisible, God only wise, and light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Yet in the fullness of time, in God's wisdom and in his beauty, he has sought to make that which was invisible visible, to make that which was unknown, known, to reveal himself in the form, well, of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. The Greek word for the image that's used here is the Greek word icon, or from where we get the word icon. I don't know if you've ever had the the opportunity to have to write a a research paper or a history paper and to have to look up all of the the sources of the people that lived in history, sort of these, these folks who are invisible that we've never met and we've never known. As you look up the, the stories and the histories and the dates, you'll often discover that their, their image has been preserved in the form of an icon. Here's an image of what Julius Caesar would look like if you were to wonder what would it be like to talk to him or to engage with him. There's an icon that's been preserved, so we have something of a remnant of his, of his image. But Jesus imaging God is far greater and far more profound than that. Paul goes on to write in verse 19 that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. All the fullness of who God is dwelt in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. If you want to know what God is like, see Jesus. 
Do you want to know who God is like and the way he interacts with those around him? Will you read and follow with who Jesus is? There's no mistake that this is God in the flesh. I always think back with a, a, a touch of humor to my years in middle school when you were forced to take classes that you really didn't want to take and you really weren't interested in taking. And we always had to take an art class every couple of years. And I'm not an artist. I have very little artistic ability, but I would try as I might. And it's something even as simple as a mug. I would look back at the end of this little artistic endeavor and have to explain to the teacher. I, you you kind of see what I was going for, right? It kind of looks like a mug, even though it's not really in the right shape. And you can kind of see if you use your imagination, like if you... You, can, you kind of see what we're doing, right? That's not how God is imaged in Jesus. There's no sense of Jesus being a second-class God or kind of like God or close to the real thing, or, or you kind of get the idea, right? No, Jesus is God in the flesh, fully man, fully God. Jesus is superior because he's God. Not just is he God. We go on to see that Jesus is actually the creator, He's the creator and the sustainer of all of life. The second way in which Jesus is superior is that Jesus is the creator and sustainer. Look again at verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and heaven on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all that exists. When God's word says that he's the firstborn of all creation, that doesn't mean that he's the literal firstborn. There are other uh, sects that believe that. Jesus isn't the firstborn as if he's the first literal person, but he's the firstborn as the person of prominence, of position, of status. The firstborn would be the one who is the heir to the family's fortunes. And so too we can see in Jesus as the heir of all of what God has created as called the firstborn, the one of prominence, the one of position. And he's the creator, the sustainer. That's why as you think back in Jesus' life and whenever he was with his disciples, even at his command that the wind and the waves obeyed him and were still, the disciples marveled at that response and said, even the wind and the waves obey him. They understood that the one who had created the universe the wind and the waves know the voice of their creator and they respond in faith when they're commanded to be still. Jesus is prominent in all of creation. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities as countries battle for prominence and as individuals strive for influence and as companies seek profit, Jesus is still on his throne, still ruling over all of the universe. As our culture slides away from its Christian understandings and moral underpinnings, as you think about maybe the challenges that that's faced within your own family and the structural dynamics that have come into play and power dynamics of the erosion of faith, Jesus is still on his throne and he is still in control, ruling and overruling all of his creation. We have a saying that we often use in RUF, you hear it all the time, God is at work. God is at work. It's a very simple belief, and it's a very simple statement, but it's, an, it's, a, it's a statement that underpins so much of what we do as a reminder that as we go forward onto the college campus, as we go forward engaging in what God has called us to do, it's actually God is the one who is at work. God is the one who goes before us, who gets there before us, who receives all the glory for what we engage in. And so even as we walk on the campus, even as sometimes I walk down the breezeway, 
and notice the slogans that define our cultural moment of a university who's seeking to try to bring hope and help, but actually undercutting their own efforts by the beliefs by which they espouse. Jesus is still on his throne. He is still ruling and overruling all that this world has in place. I think of the end of Jesus' life as he's before Pontius Pilate in John chapter 19, and Pilate is challenging Jesus to see that, well, don't you see, Pilate says, that I'm the one that can release you. I have authority over you. And Jesus responds back to him and says, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Make no mistake, Pilate, you're not in control of this universe. Isn't that a fitting reminder as we think about our own lives as, as so often we can sort of battle a sense of anxiety and control and wanting to make things happen. If the circumstances of your life and the circumstances in which you find yourself, be it in your personal life, in your work life, in your family life, in the political world in which you find yourself, there's no authority outside of Jesus' control. And if he wanted the situation to be different, it would be. And so in the midst of the life that we seek that has a sense of uncertainty, he's reminding us that he is the creator and the sustainer of all of life. I love the way in which it's almost like if, if you could take a highlighter in a liter, literary sense, Paul is highlighting this point for the church in a way that they would understand that is probably missed for you and me. Notice the way he uses four phrases or four words to highlight Jesus' authority over all of creation. In verse 16, he says that it's whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Do you see how he says the same thing four times? It's like he's highlighting for the church to see, even over those things that are invisible, powers, rulers, thrones, authorities. Jesus is in control, and he does it four times, and here's why. In the Greco-Roman world, in the first century mindset, if you wanted to share or if you wanted to prove that you had complete control of something, if you wanted to show that you had complete totality of understanding, you would use a fourfold description. It's why in Revelation, before the throne of God is defined, you find four living creatures. Before the throne of God. Who's worshiping before God? A complete of creation. When God sends forth the four horsemen of the apocalypse to cover over all four corners of the earth, he's showing complete dominance over his rule. It's why he sends four. When God assures the church in Revelation of all of the people that have been gathered into their body of believers who are worshiping in heaven, he describes them as every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's a fourfold description to say it's complete. Everybody is here. Some have even said it's why we have four gospels because it's a complete story of Jesus. And so too, in these verses this morning, as Paul is reflecting on Jesus' creative power and sustaining authority, cementing that reality into our hearts and our understanding, he says in this fourfold way, even over thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority, he upholds them all by the word of his power. And so even from the, the beauty of all of creation, we can marvel at God's care for even the most vulnerable aspects of this world. The psalmist says in 147, Psalm 147, that God gives to the beasts their food and to the young raven that cries, God hears and he provides. 
and he sustains. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. See, Jesus is supreme in Paul's mind and understanding because he's God. He's the creator, and he's the sustainer of all that exists. But he comes and starts to bring this message back closer to home from these sort of magnanimous descriptions of God, of Jesus as God and creator, he brings it home a little bit closer and says, here's the third way in which Jesus is superior to all. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Sometimes God's word is so simple, it's, we kind of just need to stop and think for a moment of the simplicity of the explanation. I want to say this delicately. Think about your own physical life. If your head is separated from your body, your life will end. Simple, right? And in the same way, we as members of the church are the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head. And if we get separated from our head, Jesus, our life will cease. Paul's writing to the church not only a a statement of truth, but a reminder of where their heart needs to be oriented. Jesus is the head of the church. And so too we live in dependence upon him for our health, our sustenance, our nourishment, our life. This is obvious, as you know, a transitional season in the life of Spanish River Church. As we've gone through the, the, the struggles and the weird season of COVID, of figuring out how do we shut down, how do we do church, how do we bring back to a, a sense of safety, it's a transitional moment. It's a transitional moment in the call of a senior pastor. Only the third time in the life of this church have we had to call a new senior pastor. The purchase of a new building next door uh, is another aspect of the transitional season and nature of the life of, of the ministry of this church. There is a ton to be excited about. There's a ton to be thankful for. And with the legacy of Spanish River as a church, you can see God's faithfulness to this church and to this body. But transitional moments are often times where competing beliefs and competing uh, underlying desires can sometimes surface. And so we do well to collectively remind ourselves of this reality. Our life is found in the head of this church who is Jesus. Our life isn't found in buildings, it's not in programs, it's not in people, but it's found in Jesus, the head of this church. Several years ago, I was reading through a commentary written by the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, that Welsh preacher of the 20th century. And he makes this comment in this commentary in 1 John chapter 4. What makes a great preacher? You've probably thought that question. You might be thinking about it now. What makes a great preacher? Uh, Insecure moment for me. Uh, But Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what makes a great preacher? So often we leave church thinking about, man, what great stories he told. He has such a great sense of humor. Such an interesting person. Lloyd-Jones says none of those things make a great preacher, but here's what makes a great preacher. The one who leaves you with this impression, what a great Savior. What a great Savior that we serve of what Christ has done. 
Paul is taking his church, as it were, from miles across the Roman Empire and bringing them back to the central reality. Here's what your life is about. Jesus is a great Savior. He's the head of the church. I would go so far as to say that even as we think about the the call of ministry, if that's the job of a pastor is to make known and make great the name of Christ, well, isn't that too, then we can say, the work of the church collectively? As our reputations as 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 members in the body of Spanish River Church and the life of Boca Raton is as we think about the the ministry of RUF on campus at FAU, that the reputation that we want to leave with is that the watching world comes into contact and says, what a great Savior they serve, and I want to know Him. Jesus is superior because He is the head of the church. But finally, Paul brings this message even closer to home and calls us to see that Jesus is superior to all that this world has and all that this world offers because Jesus is our peace with God. Jesus is our peace with God. The singular most defining moment of the life of Christ, his work of reconciliation was found in the cross. You can see the way in which Paul teases this out in verse 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How has Christ made reconciliation? He's done so by the blood of the cross. That's why Paul says in these verses that he's the firstborn from the dead. There's that description again, the firstborn, the one of prominence, the one of position. He's the one who's tasted death on our behalf and as the creator of the universe has actually defeated death, rose again from the grave, and has marked with a stamp of approval that your sins are atoned for. Your life is hid with Christ on high if your faith is in him. It's his blood shed on the cross that has made reconciliation for you and for me. Did you know that every time in the Bible, when God addresses the issue of reconciliation, he is always the one who moves first? God is the one who moves forward in bringing reconciliation between fallen people like you and me with himself. You can see it here that God's pleasure in having all of his fullness dwell in Christ in verse 20 was so that he could reconcile to himself the world. In verse 21, Paul goes on to write to the church that once you were alienated, but God has reconciled you in Christ. God is the one who moved forward. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read a very similar description. All this, he says, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God is the one who's moving forward, bringing reconciliation with those who are far off, bringing them in near. That's not the way we normally handle conflict. (laughs) That's not the way we normally handle conflict those who are at odds with us, often and maybe a state of immaturity, we sort of know that somebody has something against us and we think to ourselves, well, I haven't done anything wrong. If they have an issue, they can come talk to me. God, who's perfect, moves towards those who have blown it. God moves towards those who have fallen in sin. God moves towards those who are enemies of the cross in order to bring them near and reconcile them by the work of Christ. I've used this illustration with our students on campus, uh, so bear with me as I say it again. 
Imagine you had a book, a journal, if you will, that was a record of everything that you've ever done, all of your accomplishments, all of your joys, all of the highlights, and all of the great moments of your life. But this book, this journal, also carried with it all of the, all of the not-so-great parts, the embarrassing parts, the shameful parts, the things that you want to forget, the things that you've tried to forget, all of it is contained in this book, in this journal. And not only just the things that have happened, and not just the things that you've done, and not just the joys, and not just the things that you're embarrassed about, but even the motivations behind it, even the reason why you've done the things that you've done, all there in black and white. And one day you realize this journal that you normally carry with you, you left it in a public place. You left it in the break room at work. You left it in the cafeteria at school. You left it in a place where somebody is going to find it. And in that moment of panic that you realize you've left it, and the blood drains from your body and you run back to find it, to your horror you discover there's a group standing around reading the details, all of the good and all of the bad. And they're snickering and they're laughing and they're looking at each other and think, who's, who's life? does this belong to? And as they turn to the front cover to discover whose name is on this book, it's not your name. It's Jesus. He has taken your sin and your shame. He on the cross bore our sin. And in, our, in His place, He has given us His righteousness. You see, when God says that He's reconciled us by the blood of the cross... It's Jesus' sacrifice taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. Fully expecting to see our names written on that book and all of its humiliation, Jesus owns it and gives to us his perfect record of righteousness. You see, God is at work through Christ. He is superior because he's God He's superior because he's the creator, the sustainer of all of life. He's the head of the church, and he's also the one who has reconciled us with God himself. A few semesters ago on campus, one, uh, on campus a couple semesters ago, our students all in their small group Bible studies were working through a study on the Apostles' Creed. Each week, these students would gather together, and they would look at the next section of the Apostles' Creed, And really what it was, it was a Bible study using the creed as a guide. And so each week they would look at God's word and discuss the relevant passages of Scripture that have formed the Apostles' Creed. About midway through that semester, one of our students, who she had been coming regularly and was part of the life uh, of RUF, she pulled me aside and said, could we meet sometime this week? I I just want to talk to you about what's going on in my life. So we get together later that week, sitting there at the Starbucks on campus, and she says, something just really strange has happened this semester, and I just feel like I need to share with you a little bit more of what's going on. It's like for the first time in my life as I read the Bible, all of a sudden those words have come to life. And it's like God's word is alive and it's real. As I've gone to the girls' Bible study every Monday night there in the dorm next to the football stadium, I've become impressed with the reality of this God of the universe who's created all of life and has even created me has now reconciled me to him by the work of Christ. In worship, I'm emotional as I sing the truths of of these great songs that we sing, and I'm wondering what's happened, what's going on. It's one of those moments that is so joy-filled that you can say, I can tell you what's happened. The God of the universe has reconciled you to himself 
through the work of Christ, He's made known to you your dependence upon the Spirit. And because of the work of Jesus, has now made you a daughter of the kingdom of God. You see, God is at work. Jesus is superior. He calls us into relationship with Himself and secures the very way in which we can have that relationship. And so, too, we see this morning this Jesus, who's the image of the invisible God, who's the head of the church, the creator and sustainer of all of life, is our peace. And we do well to follow closely to him. If you are here this morning and that doesn't define you, if you are sort of on the outside and you don't know God in this way, I would invite you this morning to lay hold of Christ, to by faith confess your sin, to confess your unbelief, and to know that the God of the universe who's perfectly imaged in Christ moves towards you in grace and mercy and will call you into a relationship with him as well. Let me pray for us. God, we are grateful that once, even though we were in sin, that once we were enemies of the cross, serving ourselves and serving our own ways, you have now brought peace through the work of Christ. God, we ask that even this morning as we close this service, as we sing your praises, that once again you'll transform us by the renewing power of your grace and by your spirit will make us alive to you and to your word. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.